The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Citigroup ends a nine-year investor drought. Chinese conglomerate H&A puts shareholders in a spin, and Google may have to embrace transparency to fend off Washington's skepticism. These are the issues we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my co-host is Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. All right, so first we're going to turn to Citigroup. This is the first time since 2008 that they have decided to have a shareholder meeting, which is crazy to me, but perhaps you can take us through it. So on Tuesday, Chief Executive Mike Corbat presided over the bank's first investor day in nine years. You were there. What happened? Well, actually, what well, not only was I there uh, on Tuesday, I was also there nine years nine ago. Years which ma- <laughs> makes me wonder whether it's time I got a new job. And this was pre-crisis. Uh, well, it was mid-crisis. mid-crisis. It was mid-crisis. it was May two thousand and eight, uh, where Vikram Pandit, uh, the then CEO, had been in charge for I'm going to say about six months. Uh, they'd already gone out and raised some money from investors to try and cover some of the losses that had caused the previous CEO Chuck Prince to have to resign. All these remember that the Alphabet Soup at the time, MBS, CDOs. Uh, CPDOs, you name it, City got hit by it and had tens of billions of dollars of losses. That's basically still the story nine years later. Not that they are still suffering from losses, but those losses were transferred into what are called deferred tax assets, which is a very boring name, which basically means that because you lost money in the past, you now have these tax benefits that you can use as long as you make enough money to use them. The problem is, City had so many of them, and it has to count against your capital that it now reduces their returns. So now, nine years later, the alphabet soup of uh, the mortgage crisis has been replaced by the alphabet soup of, of tax allocation. You know, DTAs, ROEs, and everything is just a complete mess for City. And that's not the fault of the management in charge at the moment. Actually, the guy who now runs it, Mike Corbett, uh, who's been running it since Vikram Panic got kicked out three or four years ago, um, he actually is the one who first made sure that City Holdings, which contained all the bad assets that City got in the crisis got wound down. And he's the one who's coming up with a strategy that he's hoping will finally get the bank to earn a, a semi-decent return. Why now? Why nine years later? Like, is there some pivotal point where they felt comfortable enough that yeah. they I mean, wanted to go out in front of investors? Yeah, let's make it clear. First of all, it's, it's not as if City hasn't been meeting investors. What's happened is they've had their first big investor day, which you know, JP Morgan has every year. Wells Fargo has every other year, I think. And a lot of other banks do them as well. And that's where they try and gather as many of their investors as possible in one place and give them a deep dive uh, into what the businesses are doing. If you think about what may happen, say, in an investor meeting normally, say you get 10 investors and a couple of analysts along, they'll spend an hour or two talking through things. Or there'll be an hour or so on quarterly earnings calls uh, to go through what's happening. Well, this was a six-hour event with, with, with lunch, which was very nice. And really, it was the first opportunity that investors have been given really to look properly into a lot of the individual segments of the businesses. And that's really what needs to happen. And the reason why it's happening now, according to Corbett, is that he says we've now reached a transitional point. And basically what he means is that last month, the Federal Reserve finally allowed the bank to return more capital, more in capital each year than it's going to earn each year, which means that capital drag that I was talking about earlier will gradually start to diminish as opposed to grow as it has been for the past several years. So um, the strategy then, what I mean, what are some of the key things that he said? And and do you think that they can get there? Can City kind of get beyond what you're, this drag yeah. that you're talking one, about? One of them, I think, 
should be just about fine. It, the bank reckons they can they can return about sixty billion to shareholders uh, over the next three years, including what the Fed allowed them to return last month. And that, that, that when they do that, is that normally dividends buybacks? How is both, that done? Both. Yeah, okay. Um, although I think the way he's um, way Corbett is talking about that in terms of what it means for earnings per share, he's looking purely at share buybacks. Okay. Uh, but the overall return is going to be around he reckons sixty plus billion. And unless there's some kind of calamity, and we never rule that out a city, it has after all been involved in just about every single financial yeah, they crisis got clobbered, right? over the past 30 years. Right. Yeah, so there's, you know, or 40 years in fact. So you, know, you never say no to city getting in a crisis, but it has done a lot of work to turn around and it has better risk management. If they can return the capital that he's thinking, that, which basically means the Fed allows them to increase the amount gradually each year, that probably takes care of half of the increase he wants to get. He's basically looking at getting $9 a share for shareholders in earnings by 2020, up from $5 now. So that's an 80% jump. That's pretty big. Right? So you think, okay, half of that maybe is from share buybacks. Most of the other half comes from increasing the global consumer bank, i.e. retail. Hmm. And that's where, on the face of it, it starts sounding really fishy because they're talking about growing um, retail 5% a year, which is way beyond where global growth is meant to be. So wait, but where, where are they now in terms of the retail bank? Are they one, I mean, can you just round the corner and there's cities everywhere. Yeah, cities, so where, yeah. where do well, they it, it, this is a, sit They this? now have it as a global business. City is in 19 major markets around the world, I think. It's it's concentrated on, I mean, City itself and the bank is in about 100 different markets, but retail, it's about 19 different markets having cut back since the crisis. So I think they got rid of around 20 different markets. Um, so they're concentrating where they can earn money. Same in the US, where they have drastically reduced the footprint and also concentrated on where they can uh, earn money. And what they want to do is basically take this wonderful platform they've got in Asia called City Gold, which is where they appeal to high net worth individuals and wealthy individuals. And they want to bring it back here because if they do that, they say, look, you can get a 25-fold increase in revenue versus a, a regular customer if you can get most of the business from a, a wealthier consumer. And that seems like a highly competitive. Absolutely, yeah. Look, having, all the banks want that yeah, customer. They're having some success. But it's, you know, it's, it's, at the moment, it's small beer. But they're getting there. But also, it's, it's not just about getting more, more clients. What they want to do is reduce costs, as does every bank. The city is already pretty efficient, despite its poor returns, which is purely about capital. Its efficiency ratio, which is the amount you spend of revenue on costs, is already at the retail bank around 55%, right, which is one of the best in the industry. They think they can get that down to 50%, which sounds like a tall order. But they're already talking about something they're doing on fintech. One of the best things about fintech for banks is that it helps them reduce costs. And one example they gave yesterday, without really going into the cost itself, was um, just one very simple thing they've got on their app, which allows customers who think they've lost their credit card to push a lock button, which means it's no longer going to be used by someone, say, if they picked it up off the street and wants to use it or has stolen it. Your standing orders still work. Everything else is fine. What they say, and then you can turn it back on again, so it's, like, it. so it's like a mobile phone. Basically, the banking app allows you, this is yeah. just one simple example, allows you to cancel or at least put your credit card on hold. I think Discover actually is the one who really pushed this. But Cities adopted it and adapted it. And they've said that since they brought this in, that has resulted in what they think is one million fewer calls to their call centers from people worried they've lost their credit cards. Huh. And you think about what that, that translates to on just one little thing. If you then expand that into cutting paperless, sta- get going to paperless statements, um, getting getting more people to get credit cards online rather than, rather than doing it uh, through marketing through the mail, which annoys everyone, obviously. How many times have you got a credit card registration form from Citi or some other bank and you thought, in the mail thought, 
this this just means Thousands. I've got to shred it. I, yeah. I, I must get at least four or yeah, five. Yeah, the damn a week. thing's annoying, yeah. right? So they're coming up with a better way of doing that, and many other things besides. Also, look, they they are they're quite behind in wealth management, in part because they sold Smith Barney to Morgan Stanley in the crisis to raise money. They're growing that. Um, they're growing their credit cards business, which maybe is a concern that they're growing it too fast. They went through some good numbers yesterday, maybe gave investors some comfort that they're not overdoing it. Um, but we'll wait, wait and see. Again, you know, it's city. You never know. But And also, uh, they're growing Mexico, which, again, they're, they're making some assumptions that maybe are a, a little bit uh, pushy. Um, but all they really want to do is get the business to go from return on equity, which is relatively low, around 13%, to around 19%, which is roughly where JP Morgan is at the moment. It's, it's U.S. retail business. So they're not shooting for the stars compared to rivals. The question is whether they can do enough by 2020 to get there. If they don't... It's still not the worst problem in the world because it's growing and it will get better and better over time. It's just maybe they aren't, their targets are a bit too punchy. But I think that's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having punchy targets as long as you show some progress and as long as there's no recession that comes along uh, to land City and others in the drink again. And I think all that aside... I think if they manage to grow this decently, even if they don't hit 13, uh, even if they don't hit the 19% return they're looking for, you've got a good case for the stock increasing from where it is now, about $68 a share. You know, I, I reckon maybe if it's worth book value, if they do a good enough job, that takes it up another um, 13%. It's not stellar, it's not fantastic, but it shows that City is finally trying to show investors where the money's going to come from. The big problem they've got is, is just, you know, back to what we said at the beginning. The $46 billion in, in these deferred tax assets that just, they reckon it's going to take them 23 years at the moment to get rid of all those. And that's just going to keep those returns depressed by about two percentage points for quite a long time yet. Okay, well, let's hope it's not another uh, 23 years before they have another investor day. Well, so. Corbett did say that maybe they'll have one in a couple of years, so, <laughs> but we'll see. Again, you never know you never with City. All right, well, thanks for that, Anthony. In our next segment, we're handing it over to our Asia colleagues. They will be discussing the strange tale of one of China's biggest conglomerates. Hey, I'm Pete Sweeney, Asia editor here in Hong Kong, joined by my Breaking Views colleague, finance editor Quentin Webb. We're here to talk about the uh, mysterious shareholder shakeup that happened recently at Chinese giant conglomerate HNA. Quentin, you've been covering these guys for a while. I mean, what makes this, to your view, you know, why should international readers care about this company? What, what makes them so interesting? Well, I think HNA is a sort of uniquely Chinese combination of ambition and opacity. They started as a regional airline in Hainan, a sort of southern uh, holiday province of China. They've actually gone on to do tens of billions of dollars in overseas acquisitions. They have said in the past that they'd like to have $5 trillion worth of assets by the middle of the next decade. And yet, up until now, it hasn't really been clear exactly who owns them. That's not necessarily unusual with private companies, of course, particularly in China, but it has been a bit strange as they have done deals like buying nearly a tenth of Deutsche Bank, the most systemically important bank in Europe, arguably. Yeah, they want Mooch's hedge fund. I mean, their, their strategy has certainly been, been fascinating. They have a target, right? I mean, like they want to get super huge. Right now, they, they openly say they have one trillion renminbi in assets, but what's with their size goal that they had? Well, exactly. So we're not quite sure if this still applies, but there was a Harvard Business School case study a couple of years ago where one of the founders of H&A was quoted as saying that they would like to have five trillion US dollars worth of assets by 2025, which is an absolutely enormous total. Yeah, it sounds like they were begging to be considered a systemic risk. 
Well, so the new shuffle is involving, you know, some charities are, are taking over from these other mysterious shareholders. You know, the CEO, Adam Tan, told Reuters in an interview that you know, even though they're not listed, they're, they're trying to be more transparent. You know, they're obviously, you know, if they're going to go into Deutsche Bank and stuff like that, you know, you need to clear things up a little bit. Also, obviously, they, they've been reportedly having troubles at home with, with Chinese banks and the regulator worrying a little bit about their exposure to H&A. I mean, what's your take on the way they, they move things around? Is this a, should this alleviate concerns about opacity and, and confusion? So we now have a situation where there used to be one big domestic charity that had a big stake in H&A. Now there's also a big charity in New York, oddly enough, which has a large stake. So together, these two charities... Um, which seem to be controlled by the executives of H&A, will control a majority of the company. So that raises some sort of funny questions. You know, for a start, why is this new charity in America, of all places? Secondly, did the people who owned the shares before get compensated in some way for, you know, what theoretically is probably a multi-billion dollar business? Uh, Who were these people? We still don't know. There's (laughs) one Chinese businessman who on paper at least, had a big stake in HNA, and we still don't really know who he is and why he ended up holding that stake. I mean, they're sending off a signal that they're not rattled, though, I think. They're saying, we're still making deals, we're slowing down. I mean, unlike, so they're part of this this troubled group, right? Dalian Wanda, Anbang, um, those guys are having severe headaches with, with regulators for different reasons. Fosun also seems to be in the focus, Zhejiang, Luosun. Tomorrow group, the list goes on and on. But, but I mean, H and A seems unusual in that they're really trying to kind of be loud about, you know, we're being more conservative, but we're going to keep buying. You know, we're they just they're they're trying to buy a share in the Rio de Janeiro airport. Um, what are the other deals they're cooking? I mean, do you do you expect them to keep on trucking this way, or is this kind of the last charge in terms of their outbound ambitions? I think it's important to draw a bit of a distinction between them and someone like. Anbang, which is another rather opaque Chinese company that's grown up very quickly. Um, Because, of course, Anbang's chairman has now been apparently detained by the authorities. So he clearly tripped some kind of line, went too far, and he was perhaps seen as contributing more to systemic financial risk at home because his company was uh, raising a lot of money quickly through these kind of quasi-investment-style insurance products. So I think H&A is maybe not quite in the same camp. There was an interesting New York Times article the other day which talked about the grey rhinoceroses of China. This is in opposition to the black swans of the West. So (laughs) the idea that there are these big, you know, lumbering conglomerates, including H&A and including Fosun, Dalian Wanda, that are in plain sight but are also potentially risky, I think they're not quite the same. And as you say... Uh, even when other companies started pulling back from acquisitions, H&A was still out saying, on the record, we, we're going to keep going and we're going to keep doing this, funding these deals with overseas cash flows. Right. So that maybe is one way in which they would argue they are different. They're not, they would say, taking money from China and spending it abroad. They already have a lot of assets, a lot of cash flow potential overseas so they can use what they have already to kind of accumulate more assets. Well, I mean, do you think that regulators should have been worried? I mean, one of the other distinguishing things about H&A compared to its peers was it bought more than any of these guys overseas. It, you know, the Reuters data analysis we ran, you know, showed them just lapping Wanda, Anbang, you know. I mean, should regulators be worried about these guys and how they were, they were financing these deals? Were they 
systemically risky, or is this just kind of meddling by, by bureaucrats? Well, I've argued in the past that one should always be a bit afraid when you see a conglomerate grow very fast through a series of deals. And I guess not only this kind of scale of the deals and the size of their ambitions, but also the kind of breadth of them too is a bit worrisome. So uh, to begin with, a lot of the HNA deals are in travel and tourism, and that sort of made sense as a whole. But they have increasingly broadened that focus. So now they're buying you know, minority stakes and asset managers. They're trying to buy their hedge fund fund of business uh, run by the guy who's now Donald Trump's new communications director. They have this big stake in Deutsche Bank. Um, the net is growing wider and wider. And so, you know, question mark over whether they have the experience and the capabilities to keep themselves on top of this ever-increasing empire. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Gwen. Thank you. $2.7 billion. That's how much Google parent Alphabet just had to fork over to settle a European Union suit that had used its heft in advertising to dominate related markets. And that may not be the last time the company or other Silicon Valley firms face the wrath of regulators. Rob Siren and Gina Chon join us to explain what the options are for the advertising giant and for some of its rivals. Rob, let's start with you. So this $2.7 billion, it took a fair chunk out of Google's earnings, but it's not mm -hmm. as if it's hobbling the company. Just talk us through what happened and why. So what happened is there's basically a duopoly right now in internet advertising. So Facebook and Google, they have about half the revenues. Um, and what's more of the increase in revenues, any growth in the sector is almost going entirely to these two firms. Right. And that's worrying regulators, especially in the European Union, because they, they don't have tech giants. And so... If there's a monopoly and if consumers are being harmed, that's hurting European consumers. And so what the Euro Europe is looking at and saying, hey, hold on, you, you companies, Google particularly, you're using your dominance in search to uh, push your related offerings, hurting other companies and hurting consumer choice. Okay. And Gina, turning to you in, in Washington, is this an issue that regulators in D.C. are concerned about as well? I mean, as Rob said, part of the issue in Europe is there are no European tech giants. But over here, of course, they're, they're both American companies, Facebook and, and Google. So what are the concerns that either regulators or the administration, the Trump administration, have about Google, Facebook and others at the moment? There's definitely been concern, but you haven't seen any sort of major actions on the regulatory front the way that you have seen in Europe. Um, that could be changing, however. There's growing calls on both sides of the aisle in terms of wanting greater scrutiny for these big companies that dominate here, whether it's Google, Facebook, or Amazon, which is a frequent target of President Trump as well. So though we haven't seen anything big yet in, in terms of any sort of crackdowns, uh, that could be changing. But what do you, what do you think the, the, the firms are worried about? You've been talking to some of them about this. Do they have particular concerns about what D.C. may be after? I mean, the Democrats just rolled out their uh, latest platform, which includes greater antitrust scrutiny of big online platforms and whether uh, they contribute to keeping the uh, marketplace fair and open. They've also suggested that access to consumer data should play a much bigger role when it comes to reviews of mergers and acquisitions in terms of how that can um, hurt competition. Um, so 
those are sort of two specific areas. There's also some bills floating around in Congress that would take away some legal liability protections that online companies have enjoyed for about two decades now um, that have protected them from, you know, anything illegal that their users might be posting. And that could be uh, chipped away at with some of the legislation we're seeing. So, Gina, you mentioned that there is some motion on both sides of the aisle. I mean, how realistic is it? I mean, given everything that's going on in D.C. right now, um, you know, is there kind of a coalition that's really that could really uh, challenge these companies? Yeah, there. I think it is part of the um, populist attitude that still exists. And, you know, Wall Street was um, used to be sort of the uniting um, target for both sides. But I think there's a sense that that's been sort of done uh, already. And so I think they, there is a move to look at uh, the internet space. With some of these bills, they have bipartisan support, which is pretty rare these days in Washington. In terms of the Democratic platform, um, as I mentioned, you've also seen President Trump go after um, not only Amazon, but he's also mentioned the AT&T Time Warner deal in terms of perhaps having too much uh, media power. Um, There's also sort of people on the conservative side and kind of anti-globalists, if you will, like the president's advisor, Steve Bannon, who are also in favor of greater scrutiny. So there could be sort of a, a joining of forces when it comes to targeting these companies. So, Rob, let me ask you this, uh, and let's let's just go back to Google for a second. Is there any, do you get a sense that Google is concerned about this or, you know, the $2.7 billion, which is a huge fine, but again, kind of a drop in the bucket for them. Are they worried about this and are they, they kind of, are they trying to think ahead of, well, yeah. you know, what's, what's going <laughs> to happen? They're, they're definitely worried about it. They've ramped up uh, legislative spending and lobbying very, very heavily, both in the U.S. and Europe over the past few years. And they know, they've seen what happened to Microsoft and other tech giants when they became dominant players. They spent a lot of time and effort fighting off regulatory challenges. And that's not the sort of thing that a company wants to do. A a better way might be just emphasizing how much technology they put out. Um, AT&T for decades was managed to put off a breakup, government breakup, and essentially had a legally sanctioned monopoly because they they provided so much basic research for the United States. Like Bell Labs. Bell Labs. They invented things like solar power. They invented, uh, did a lot of the pioneer work on the internet, computers talking to one another. Mm. They did basically a lot of American technology leadership in those days was provided by mm. this company. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously, Google or its parent Alphabet gets the vast majority of its revenues, what, 99% or something from advertising? Uh, it's about over 90% over from 90%. advertising, yeah. But it is doing a lot of other things. I mean, one thing you mentioned in your piece, obviously, which which appeals to me is is, is, is Waymo, the, the self-driving platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've got a lot of other things they're doing as well, which you're arguing could be, they could use as a similar argument as AT&T used to. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about, you know, okay, they're doing things in green energy, they're spending a lot of money on... Yeah, gen- green energy might not go down too well in the Trump administration. But it, it'll go well in, in Europe, yeah. that's for certain. Um, and they're doing things like expanding life expectancy, which may go well with the Trump administration. Mm. Okay, Gina, la- last question to you. Everything that Rob's outlined about Google becoming more transparent and showing how well it's doing uh, or what it's doing for uh, the good of, of the U.S. economy and, and growth, 
Would that play well, do you think, with uh, with regulators or, or lawmakers? It, it can, um, it, depending on how they play it. I mean, on some of these bills here, they're trying to show how many jobs would be lost because consumers would be using search less if some of these legal liability protections were removed, um, which is actually not the kinds of arguments that you want to be making because they sound unrealistic and defensive. Um, so, you know, trying to show how much uh, they help the economy could help them, but other parts of their message uh, matter as well. Okay, Gina, thank you very much for dialing in from D.C. And Rob, thanks for coming up. Welcome. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Anthony Curry, as well as our guests, Pete Sweeney, Quentin Webb, Rob Searin, and Gina Chon. Our producers this week are Bethel Hopde and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We'd love to hear them. We'll be back next week, and we'd love you to listen in again. Thanks for joining us.